Hi, I'm Pinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello. Hi, everyone. Welcome to um, episode four of season two of It's a Continent. How's it going? Yeah, it's going good. It's going good. Had better weeks, but we're, we're surviving. We move. Yeah, we move. We just... We just keep it going, keep it going. So yes, we are back after our little short uh, break there, but we are actually going to give you guys another episode next week. That would be a taster of what a weekly release would be like. (laughs) I'm speaking it into the future. But do not, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, do not set that expectation right now. Yeah, no, the expectation is not there, but I'm, I'm, I'm I'm trying to manifest it. No, true. I would like to manifest this as much, obviously, as I love my job. Um, (laughs) As much as I need my job to survive. (laughs) It would also be great to do a weekly, but hey, you know, it could happen. We are speaking into existence. I love it. Right, where are we this week? Well, this week we're going to South Africa, but just before we do go into South Africa, we're just going to do our African Pride segment. And this week's African Pride segment is um, to Kajal Sambe, who is Senegal's first female professional surfer who trains near her home in the district of Ngor the westernmost point of the African continent. And also, just just so you know, West Africa is home to beautiful beaches, by the way. And um, Sambe got into surfing and she thought, I would always see people surfing. I'd say to myself, but where are the girls who surf? And, you know, she's actually inspired the next generation to defy cultural norms and take to the ways by training girls at Black Girls Surf for girls or women who want to compete in professional surfing. She encourages her students to develop the physical and mental strength to ride waves and break the mould in a society which generally expects them to stay at home, cook, clean and marry young. Nice. That's good. This is the first time I've even kind of ever spoken about the topic of surfing, let alone, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Black girls surf. But I love it. I love it. I love it. This is literally when you have those conversations, you're like, this is the first time I've ever had a discussion on this. But yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm really liking it. I'm really liking it. Good honor. I love the quote that Sambe says as well, where she's like, I always advise them not to listen to other people to block their ears. And I think that's a mantra that we should apply <laughs> to our daily oh, lives. <laughs> all day, every day, honestly. Just just don't listen to other people. Don't just... <laughs> It's not necessary. Unless you're listening to this right now, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen to us, please. Don't touch that dial. This is a good episode. No, this is juicy. Don't worry. We have lots of tea. So let's get started with Steve Biko, um, who was a South African anti-apartheid nationalist. And we're covering him in this episode because we thought long and hard about what we wanted to do when we got to South Africa. I mean, we know a lot about Nelson Mandela, but of course, there were many other people campaigning to bring apartheid to an end many of whom paid with their lives. Biko was one of the most powerful figures in South Africa's struggle against apartheid, yet is often not given the recognition in Western education as he should. At a time when activists from the ANC, the African National Congress, Pan-African Congress and South African Communist Party were in jail or in exile, Biko was an instrumental voice in reinvigorating opposition to South Africa's apartheid government. Steve Biko, born Bantu Stephen Biko, was born on December 18th in 1946. He was born to a poor family in the Ginsberg Township in the Eastern Cape. 
So just to let you know, that kind of places him at the age of some of our grandparents, you know. So this is, it's not, it's not an old thing. Now we'll go on to talk about what is a township and how they came about. After World War II, urbanisation around major cities in South Africa took place as the colour bar put in place was relaxed due to the war. However, the South African government didn't build new accommodation for this influx of new residents here for work. This led to overcrowding, poor living conditions and the absence of sewerage, water and electricity. High rents and overcrowding led to land invasions and the growth of shack settlements, which the government turned a blind eye to. By 1950, the majority of the urban black population lived in these townships with poor living conditions. During apartheid rule, black people were evicted from properties that were designated as white only and were forced to move into these segregated townships. There were separate townships established for each of the three designated non-white groups. So you had black people, coloured, which is a term used to refer to mixed race people, and Indians. And this is all according to the Population Registration Act of 1950. This worked in tandem with the Group Areas Act. The Group Areas Act was seen as the cornerstone of apartheid policy, with the aim of eliminating mixed neighbourhoods in favour of racially segregated ones. The apartheid system of racial segregation pervaded all areas of Biko's life. He was absolutely committed to its overthrow. I would be too, to be honest with you. Every time, just the whole concept of apartheid, it honestly Ugh. just, I'm like, how would... I actually, I cannot believe that that's how that country was. I yeah it's shocking every time i read it to be honest yeah every time and the fact that it was just carried on until so recent until 1994 it's just yeah mind-blowing biko was an intelligent pupil skipping a year and transferring to the forbes grants secondary school in his township in 1964 he was offered a bursary to join his brother kaya as a student in lovedale a prestigious boarding school in alice eastern cape Within three months of arriving, Biko was accused of being connected with Pogo, which was the armed wing of the Pan-Africanist Congress, an African nationalist group which the apartheid South African government had banned. Kaya and Steve were arrested and interrogated by the police, and whilst there was no clear evidence of Steve's connection to Pogo, he was expelled from Lovedale. He stated, I began to develop an attitude which was much more directed at authority than at everything else. I hated authority like hell. Between 1964 to 1965, Biko studied at St Francis College, a Catholic boarding school. This college had a liberal political culture, and it was here he developed his political consciousness. With apartheid as the backdrop to his schooling, Biko was interested in the replacement of South Africa's white minority colonial government with an administration that represented the country's black majority. Two anti-colonial leaders Biko was inspired by were Ahmed Ben Bella of Algeria and Jaramogi Odinga of Kenya. Biko later said that most of his politically aware family members were sympathetic to the PAC, which is now a party in South Africa. PAC stands for Pan-Africanist Congress. They object to the ideology of the ANC, made famous by Nelson Mandela being their leader. The PAC objects to the ANC sympathising with non-whites, so that's like the Indian and the Chinese, in South Africa, as they advocate for a South Africa based on black nationalism, excluding other ethnicities or nationalities. So, I mean, it's... One of those things you think about really, like, is there a solidarity between non-black people of colour and black people? I mean, some people mm. don't believe that it should be included with the narrative or... For me, I always think that, you know, the, the differences between the different groups is a bit like a Venn diagram because you experience some things together, but most of the experience is completely different. Yeah, yeah, quite separate as well, yeah. That's quite a nice analogy, it's like a Venn diagram. Yeah, I'm going to trademark that. 
1966, Bicker received a scholarship to study medicine at the University of Natal under the non-European section. Can I just say non-European? Non-European. <laughs> you could go to uh, uni, but the freshers' fair is a uh, you know. Yeah. Sorry, the phone party is not available for Black people. Um. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> uh, you're looking for ACS, so you're definitely in the non-European section then. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So it was here that Bicker's political activism blossomed as his fellow students were described as peculiar, sophisticated and cosmopolitan, with many of them coming to hold prominent positions in the post-apartheid era. In the late 1960s, radical student politics was happening across the world and certainly in Africa. As, you know, remember, this was when many African countries were becoming newly independent. It's weird how the backdrop is that many African countries were becoming newly independent, but South Africa is still trapped in this apartheid system that by this time was still, you know, it wasn't looking close to finishing. Like, that white minority government was still going full steam ahead. Yeah, which is really, as you said, yeah, really surprising, because weren't they just looking around and being like, oh, they're free over there? Yeah. They're also becoming free. Well, free, can we just put... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah we say free, yeah. but there's I'm a not, caveat. Yeah, 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 <laughs> you know what I mean? Free, there's an asterisk on there, and then you've got a load of terms, terms and conditions. Terms and conditions do yeah, apply. <laughs> do apply, and will be reinforced, one of those. <laughs> so, yeah, like, I'm sure, yeah, it must have been really difficult, especially, yeah, being a student as Bicker was at that time, being like, yeah. gosh, everyone's getting independence, and we're out here, like, living in these townships, I'm going in this non-European section of university. It's crazy. Steve Bicker was elected to the Student Representative Council, the SRC, shortly after university, which was linked with the National Union of South African Students, NUSAS. NUSAS was a multiracial membership, but still remained dominated by white students, as they were the majority of the population who went to university at the time. Whilst NUSAS stands officially opposed apartheid, it tended to adapt its position to maintain the support of conservative white students. And during the 1960s, NUSAS white members became sympathetic to the black students' cause, as a majority of whom were based at the University of Natal, became increasingly dissatisfied with new SAS as they were unable to tackle deep racist structures and policies of both the government and universities. This inability was particularly felt when new SAS organised parties in white dorms, which black Africans were not permitted to enter under apartheid law. A standout incident which shaped Bicker's political beliefs was when, in July 1967, a new SAS conference was held at Rhodes University. Yeah, I'm already ringing some alarm bells at the name Rhodes. <laughs> I'm just slightly triggered there. After the students arrived, it turned out that the dormitory accommodation was organised for white and Indian members, but not for black Africans, who were told they could sleep in a local church. Bicker and his fellow black delegates left the conference in anger, and this led to him rethinking his belief in the multiracial approach to political activism. Again, we asked that question, is people of colour solidarity? Is that actually a thing? Like, was there silence from the non-black people of colour? I mean, I hate the term people of colour, but it's very othered, isn't it? But yeah. sometimes you're like, we're trying to defeat this structure of, of white supremacy. Is it possible for everyone to do that together? Or are there too many internal... Because there's already a hierarchy here in the fact that the Indians and the white people were able to stay in the dorms, but the black people couldn't. Mm, and the Indians definitely. were like, oh, hang on, this isn't right. They were like, oh got a place to stay like so yeah at least we've got like <laughs> this is our way in you know to be yeah. the bottom of the pile so. exactly 
In Biko's words, I realised that for a long time I had been holding on to this whole dogma of non-racism, almost like a religion. But in the course of that debate, I began to feel there was a lot lacking in the proponents of the non-racist idea. They had this problem, you know, of superiority, and they tended to take us for granted and wanted us to accept things that were second class. They could not see why we could not consider staying in that church. And I began to feel that our understanding of our own situation in this country was not coincidental with that of these liberal whites. He was disillusioned by the second class role of black students in NUSAS, which claimed to be progressive and liberal. This moment caused Biko to organise black students within this organisation to break off and form their own group, the South African Students Organisation, SASO, which came about in 1968. I don't blame him, to be honest, because sometimes there's that type of people who claim that they're all for helping but when it comes to it don't actually do anything you know they just post a black square and get on with their day yeah you know who i'm talking and about and they just think yeah, yeah yeah and then you just think oh yeah i did oh, i've done my, my bit, bit. <laughs> yeah. so yeah but you're I not gonna little... do anything when actually you know it comes to it it's the same with like organizations and stuff as well you know yeah. you'll have like a whole the whole organizational structure is just like everyone is white but then they will hire that one, you know the one. There'll be a diversity and inclusion, and inclusion officer. <laughs> who is black. Yeah. And then when they're that person is brought out anytime they're about to talk about diversity. Oh yeah. Wheeled out. <laughs> because they're dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is this person doing? Like, guys, you've got one. Yeah. One. Oh, you remember that, what that reminds me of when um I can't remember who it was on the news that asked Matt Hancock, the health secretary, oh, so are there any, uh, are there any black people in your cabinet? And he was like, oh, uh, we've got Pretty Patel. <laughs> just like, oh. oh. Don't think that counts, hun, but. <laughs> just, wow. But yeah, I totally agree with him about around this idea of just having to accept the crumbs that we get. Yeah. So please yeah. feel free to just accept, you know, that one person that we've we've got someone that looks like you and is thinking about you here. Not that it shows, <laughs> but hey, with we're thinking you're we in need our them for the adverts. Yeah. <laughs> They're out here being like thoughts and prayers. Thoughts yeah. and prayers. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Such a Republican saying. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Gosh. And they have done neither. <laughs> done there are no anyway. thoughts and there are no prayers. There are no prayers. <laughs> I want a logbook of all your prayers. <laughs> I want that. Yeah. Then I'll believe it. Sasso was centred on black consciousness, which Biko defined as the cultural and political revival of an oppressed people. Sasso eventually became a strong force to be reckoned with in South Africa. Sasso was preceded by and influenced by the University Christian Movement, the UCM, in 1967. UCM was influenced by black theology, teaching religion from the perspective of oppression, and their aim was to inspire black people to realise equality with white people, and that their blackness and inferiority was not a punishment or condition created by God. So, believe it or not, this was something that predominantly white populations were actually being taught, like, oh yeah, we need to enslave them because X, Y, Z, oh, because it says so. 
and also an example of it's just an example essentially of, of religion being weaponized and yeah. i guess the ucm from this first glance comes across as maybe like the muslim brotherhood in the u.s um sort of countering that image of black people being subservient liberation theology was taught with the aim of creating a just and fraternal society the ucm believed these teachings to be relevant for black south africans and important for their liberation However, despite the UCM's leanings towards black theology, Steve Biko and his circle weren't fully content with the UCM, as the organisation still had a large number of white people. <laughs> Sorry, oh it just gosh. gets me. <laughs> a large number of white people in their leadership structures, even though the majority of their members were black. So what is this, please? <laughs> is, it, is this a white Honestly. saberism? Like, how can black theology be led by white people? <laughs> so confused <laughs> they just can they just relate to it a lot better Chini. like how what would we know I'm yeah just... shout out gerald butler for uh bringing back the white savior revival i guess because you're like oh you know no one can travel right now i'm sure there's none of that but there he goes there he goes <laughs> handing a girl food in a dog bowl look it up on the internet because that oh, was... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I love that No no White Saviors posted it Um, and Gina Yashere spoke about it. Yeah, actually, yeah, watch Gina Yashere's uh, IGTV on it because, yeah. She just hits it. She gets it on the mark. Just, like, just absolutely. Nails, yeah. Because, I'm it. sorry, Gerald Butler was not eating in that dog bowl throughout oh, yeah. his trip there. Oh, no I guarantee. There's no way he's doing that. No way. And that's all they could find. They couldn't. They couldn't give the. They couldn't find another pl- a pl- an actual plate. Couldn't even give her a knife and fork. For goodness sake. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> he just wanted what? Had her to just go head first into yeah. the bloody dog bowl. It's so dehumanizing. It's actually it's so just so disrespectful. Awful. Like it's honestly no. I can't believe that, like, in this age of no travel, he's continuing to, like... I don't think that that was an essential activity, Gerald. I really don't, because we didn't need it. No, we really didn't need it. (laughs) In July 1968, during a UCM conference, black students formed a black caucus, coming to the conclusion that they would form an organisation exclusively for them. The South African Students' Organisation, SASO, was officially launched in July 1969, where the constitution and policy platform was adopted. The focus of SASO was to create contacts between centres of black activity through sports, debating competitions and culture activities within a student setting. Initially, Biko was seeking a low public profile during the early days of SASO, but he was elected the first president of the organisation with his fellow students from the University of Natal playing a key role in the formation of this organisation. SASO's headquarters were based in Durban. The decision to break away from New SAS was motivated by Steve Biko's black consciousness philosophy, which was in part influenced by black theology that we mentioned earlier with the UCM, even though it was a little bit ropey. This black consciousness movement rejected the idea that white people could play a role in the liberation of black people from apartheid. A quote from Biko's friend Barney Pitiana said, The main thing was to get black people to articulate their own struggle and reject the white liberal establishment from prescribing to people. Which is fair enough. Straight to the point. I yeah. like it. Sasso committed itself to the black consciousness philosophy and had a set of rules defining black consciousness. We'll upload this to our Instagram at It's a Continent Pod and Twitter at It's a Continent um, pages as well. So you can kind of see for yourself the black consciousness um, philosophy. Yeah. And also, yeah, our Twitter, we're starting to tweet a bit more. We're going to start putting um, threads on our episodes and talk about the sources that we use. So, yeah. 
it's a short plug for you to check us out definitely one of the kind of looking at the black consciousness um kind of that they defined one of the ones that i really wanted to pick out was around um point three where they basically says you know the black man must build up his own value systems see himself as self-defined and not defined by others Mm -hmm. so i thought that was quite nice in terms of just really understanding what our worth is and what we're saying about us not just being grateful for the crumbs that someone chucks at us but actually just being like you know what i know what my worth is and i will fight and it is a lot harder for us to be able to do that Mm -hmm. but i think it really helps to reinforce our self-worth yeah as people so um definitely check it out once um yeah the episode is released so the black consciousness movement involved understanding that black liberation wouldn't arrive from imagining and fighting for structural political changes as older movements such as the african national congress the anc did but also from psychological transformation in the minds of black people themselves the movement believed that in order to take power black people had to believe in the power of their blackness aka believe in your source you know this this was started back then mm-hmm. and essentially if black people believed in democracy but did not believe in their own value they wouldn't truly be committed to gaining power so yeah again just reinforces that we really do need to just have that self-belief and just keep pushing because change does happen just slowly slowly, very slowly just get there gets there one black square at a time yeah (laughs) if only it was that simple Biko had an interesting view when it came to liberalism in apartheid South Africa. The early focus of the BCM was on criticising anti-racist white liberals and liberalism itself. In one of his early published articles, Biko said he was not sneering at the white liberals and their involvement in the apartheid movement, and that he came to the painful conclusion that the white liberal is in fact appeasing his own conscience or at best is eager to demonstrate his identification with the black people, only in so far as it does not sever all ties with his relatives on his side of the colour line. Biko and Sasso were also vocal critics of Nusa's protests against the South African government's policies. He argued that Nusa's only sought to influence the white electorate, and protests targeting a particular policy would be ineffective for the ultimate aim of dismantling the apartheid state. Sasso's focus was on establishing community projects and spreading black consciousness ideas among other black organisations and the wider black community. Sasso deliberately avoided confronting the government head-on until the organisation had grown into a reasonably large institution. This meant that Sasso avoided picketing, student marches and strikes. However, in May 1972, Sasso issued the Alice Declaration, where the organisation called for students to boycott lectures in response to the expulsion of a Sasso member, Onhoposte Tiro, from the University of the North, after he made a speech criticising the Bantu Education Act of 1953. This act governed education of black South African children, requiring them to attend government schools with the syllabus including classes in English and Afrikaans. Instruction was compulsory in needlework for girls, handcraft, planting and soil conservation, as well as arithmetic, social studies and Christian religion. This was aimed to train black South African children for manual labour and menial jobs that the government decided was suitable for each race. It's very clear here that black people were to accept being beneath white Africans. Activists did attempt to establish alternative schools known as cultural clubs as these schools were illegal under this act. These alternative schools, which would have given black South African children a better start, had collapsed by the end of the 1950s. Onhoposte Chiro was later murdered by the apartheid state by a parcel bomb in 1974. 
it's crazy because these schools that it, it literally just carries on the cycle doesn't it it just makes the prospects for black south african children worse deliberately so that they're just stuck at the bottom of the pile indefinitely essentially it's um incredibly cruel yeah there's no way to progress because you've already you know all i can do is needlework and soil i can't do anything else what am i supposed to do by 1971, Sasso's influence spread beyond the campus of South Africa's universities, with a growing number of people who were part of Sasso finishing from university needing a home. This allowed for Sasso leaders to establish a new wing of their organisation, embracing broader civil society. The Black People's Convention, the BPC, was launched in 1972. This organisation addressed issues facing black workers, as, obviously, apartheid law didn't recognise unions for black workers. Of course, this set the BPC on a direct path to collision with security forces. By 1973, the BPC had 41 branches and 4,000 members, with a significant portion of members also being part of SASO. Steve Bicko didn't stand for leadership positions within the BPC, although he was a clear influence and was heavily involved. BPC activists also established black community programs, BCPs, focusing on improving healthcare, education and promoting black economic self-reliance. BCPs were linked to and funded by several churches in South Africa, including the Christian Institute of South Africa, a progressive organisation founded by English and Afrikaans clergy to unite South African Christians against apartheid. And it should occur to you as no surprise that as soon as the Christian Institute of South Africa became deeply involved with black activists, such as Steve Biko, they appeared on the government's watch list. They were then banned by the apartheid state in 1977. So these guys are now banning things that have been set up by white, you know, Africa. (laughs) (laughs) That they hate this idea of black people gaining their own self-sufficiency so much that they are now banning white organisations. That's when you know the hate is real and (laughs) strong. Do you know what I mean? (sighs) Meanwhile, in the UK... Anyway, let's... I can't even get to that story because it just... (laughs) During this time, black church leaders such as Desmond Tutu, um, black artists, organised labour and others were increasingly politicised and despite the banning in 1973 of many leading figures in the fight against apartheid, those associated with black consciousness were the most outspoken, courageous and proactive in the fight against white supremacy. By 1973, the South African government saw the Black Consciousness Movement as a threat and actively sought to disrupt Biko's activities. In March 1973, Biko had a banning order placed on him. A banning order was a repressive and extrajudicial measure used by the apartheid regime against political opponents. We've included a list of all individuals that were banned by the regime in our episode show notes. Banning orders meant that the banned person has restrictions on where they could live and who they were in contact with. They were not permitted to attend any type of meeting or speak in public, nor could they publish or distribute any written material. The press was also not able to broadcast, publish or report the banned person's words. Also, the banned person wasn't allowed to meet with more than one person at a time and they were forbidden from engaging in political activity. The banned person could face up to five years in prison if they were found to be in breach. It's all a bit heavy, isn't it? Yeah, gosh, like, can't do this. You just might as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that's the whole purpose of this, isn't it? Yeah. Just so you literally do not exist to anyone. Yeah, it's literally, how can you ban someone's existence, please? This meant that Steve Bicko was essentially housebound. Due to Bicko and other BCM leaders being banned, new leadership arose and a BCM demonstration to mark Mozambique's independence from Portuguese colonial rule took place in 1975. 
can we just, can I, like, hang on, because 1975, you know, that's semi-recent, I would say, in terms of modern history, but you can now see that South Africa is still in this state in 1975. Imagine. A lot of the countries that we've covered to date have been, like, yeah. at this point, independent. Yeah. And it's still... And I think it also, to a certain degree, explains some of the struggles that kind of both sides kind of still have yeah. um, today oh, yeah. as well. Yeah, definitely. Because it's still so kind of fresh yeah. as well in people's minds and like, you know, generations are still around yeah. um, to still remember this. Mm-hmm. As a consequence, the government arrested 200 BCM activists with nine of them brought in front of the Supreme Court accused of attempting to overthrow the government. The apartheid state claimed that black consciousness philosophy was likely to cause racial confrontation and, you know, not apartheid. Oh, yeah. And that BCM was was a threat to public safety. And not apartheid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the accused were convicted and imprisoned on Robin Island. And this is the same place where Nelson Mandela spent 18 out of 27 years in prison. Biko would often get state security services intimidating him by means including anonymous threatening phone calls and gunshots fired at his house. As a result, a group of men called the Cubans would guard Biko from such attacks. The government still tried it though with security services detaining him four times and on one occasion he was detained for 101 days. Boy. (sighs) Honestly, I just the strength and perseverance and just the belief that people like Biko had yeah amazes me because as much as I'd like to think that I have some level of strength if I'm hearing gunshots being fired and I know it's by the government yeah that would you know please just shove a banning order on me and I literally just become invisible and never do you know what I mean like literally it's incredible that he's just still kept going. Oh, yeah. And people believed in him so much that, you know, they were willing to protect and guard him as well. Definitely. And that's another thing you can tell when a government is so corrupt that the dissidents or dissenting voices, they just carry on, like, doing what they're doing because it just goes to show that even despite the threats that they still believe in speaking up against the atrocities of the government that they live in. Yeah. In 1977, Biko broke his banning order and travelled to Cape Town with the aim of meeting Neville Alexander, who was associated with the unity movement, and to deal with the growing dissent in a branch of the BCM. On the 17th of August 1977, Biko drove to Cape Town with his friend Peter Jones, but Alexander didn't meet with Biko as he was fearful that the police were watching him, and they probably would have been because at this point Biko was a banned person. As Biko and Jones made their way back, they were stopped on the 18th of August at a police roadblock, which some have claimed was set up to catch him. Biko's friend was also arrested at this roadblock and was held without trial for 533 days. Without trial for that long? It's, the human rights abuses are just... Um, and this next section, um, we're going to just put a trigger warning for police brutality because it's quite graphic um, and uh, detailed. Security took Biko to warmer police station in Port Elizabeth and he was naked in a cell, his legs bound by shackles. On the 6th of September 1977, Biko was transferred to the security police headquarters and was interrogated for 22 hours, handcuffed and in shackles whilst chained. It was during this interrogation that he was beaten to the point where he suffered three brain lesions, resulting in a hemorrhage that day. After this, unbelievably, the security police forced Biko to remain standing and shackled. Biko was examined by a doctor who stated that there was no evidence of serious injury, but we know that's not the case. Two other doctors saw that the blood cells had entered Biko's spinal fluid, indicating inflammation and bleeding. Clearly, at this point, Biko was gravely injured. 
And on the 11th of September, the police loaded Biko and put him in this state, in the back of a Land Rover whilst naked and handcuffed, whilst his brain was bleeding. They decided to drive Biko again in this state for 740 miles to the hospital. So that's just, yeah, unbelievable. Biko then died alone in a cell on the 12th of September 1977. He was the 21st person to die in a South African prison in 12 months and the 46th political opponent to die during interrogation since the apartheid government introduced laws allowing imprisonment without trial in 1963. There are honestly no words yeah. to just... He said, like, from the 6th to the 11th, this guy was going through so five days and not anyone who saw him had any sense of, like, not let's ignore black and white, but just this person is a human. He yeah. is, he needs medical attention. They did not see that. Yeah, they did not even see him as a human being to allow him to suffer from hemorrhage, lesions on the brain, and they're driving for 740 miles, they, knowing full well that they would kill him in the process. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, 740 miles to find a hospital. I'm sorry, you're telling me that was the nearest one? Yeah, deliberately. The news about Biko's death spread throughout all the capitals of the world. They have killed Biko. His death got more global attention than he'd ever gotten during his lifetime, with protests held in different cities. Many people were shocked that the security police would dare to kill such a prominent dissenting voice. Bicker's funeral was attended by around 20,000 people and was described in the book Bicko, A Life as the first mass political funeral in the country. Bicker's coffin was decorated with a clenched black fist, the African continent and the words One Anzania, One Nation. Anzania was the name many activists wanted South Africa to adopt post-apartheid. Nelson Mandela said the apartheid government killed him to prolong the life of apartheid. And a blog post, which we've put in the episode show notes, paying tribute to Steve Bicko on the 25th anniversary of his death, said, Great ideas, people's ideas and ideals cannot be snuffed out by the killing of individuals. Steve Bicko is revered as the father of the black consciousness movement, with Nelson Mandela calling him the spark that lit a veiled fire across South Africa. Biko has been described as a vivid symbol of black resistance who continues to inspire new black activists. After apartheid was abolished in 1994 and a black majority government came into power, a truth and reconciliation mission was set up to look into past human rights abuses. Biko's family didn't want the commission to look into Biko's death because the commission could grant amnesty to those responsible, which isn't really justice. However, the constitutional court ruled against Biko's family and the investigation took place. Five police officers, who I'm not going to put their names in my mouth, requested amnesty, but this wasn't given as their accounts conflicted and there was no clear political motive behind Biko's killing, which seems to have been motivated by spite and hatred. And racism, to be honest. In October 2003, South Africa's Justice Ministry announced that the five policemen wouldn't be prosecuted because the statute of limitation had passed and there wasn't enough evidence to convict. A sad story in the sense that there was never any justice for Biko's mm -hmm. killers. And I guess the only, you know, as the blog post does say, great ideas, people's ideals and ideals cannot be snuffed out by the killing of individuals and ultimately the goal of overthrowing the apartheid regime was reached and i'm sure it wouldn't yeah. have been without the things that Biko did in south africa yeah definitely not and i think it's important like just even reading this just seeing there are so many similarities in terms of the things that 
our community is still dealing with today yeah it's still going on and it's still Police like mentality, yeah mm-hmm. yeah you know it might not be at the point where you know it's apartheid and it's very much in your face but guys it is still right in front of us it is and especially kind of being in the uk it is done in such a way which is hidden and is not always so the media don't talk about it of course they don't talk about it but it does definitely happen in the uk as well but it definitely happens here so i think it's just important to remember that the work that biko did was amazing in the sense that yeah south africa was able to come out of apartheid but in the grand scheme of things we've got so much to so much carry on fighting that yeah this is very much not the end but yeah Just what an amazing guy and right through to the end, yeah, was able to just keep going and keep fighting. Absolutely. Definitely, yeah, a different insight into um, South Africa's apartheid story. So that's the end of episode four um, of season two. Give us a review if you can on your podcast platform. Every little helps. Shout out Tesco. Um, also check out our Instagram at It's a Continent Pod and also our Twitter page, which we've now started to tweet a bit more regularly on at It's a Continent. Thank you for listening, guys. And yeah, we will see you in a week's time. Well, we'll actually it's see you in exciting. a week's time. There's a little yeah, taster, so, I mean, eh? This is, this is the first time. Literally, we're keeping you on your toes. It's in a week's time. It's the one time that it will be a week. But not setting that expectation the one time yeah <laughs> yeah it's the one time but yeah see you guys bye bye